0: The Strangeology Podcast, your place for exploring the world of weird and high strangeness. I'm your host, Jeff, and I like to cover all sorts of topics from cryptids and conspiracies to UFOs and the paranormal, forbidden knowledge, mysterious history, and all things unknown. Well, all right. Sorry for the delay, everyone. That seems to be happening a little bit too much lately <laughs> with this show this year. Uh, but we're trying to stay on track with that bi-weekly release as best we can. Uh, Sometimes things just get real busy uh, over here, and uh, I've just had a lot of things going on for the past couple weeks. Uh, The summer's winding down. We're getting ready for winter and all that fun stuff. Uh, But I hope you're all doing well out there and that you've had a great summer. I'm definitely ready for fall, though, because it's been super hot (laughs) for the past several weeks, and we have, like, one little final like, uh, wave of, of heat for this week. But, uh, yeah, but we're going into my favorite time of year, of course. Uh, so it's never too early to start with, uh, the Halloween decorations and finding some new stuff to grab for the season and, uh, just getting spooky with it, you know, (laughs) as far as, uh, updates go, uh, I'm recording this before heading out on a, uh, little, uh, vacation, a little, uh, weekender, <laughs> long weekend with the family, much needed. Of course, it's been, uh, quite a while since we've had a little bit of a uh, break. And, uh, so it's going to be fun. Uh, I mentioned the last episode that I was going to be announcing a new merch design, which turned out to be, uh, if you follow me over on social media, you already know this, but if you don't, <laughs> it was a, uh, Flatwoods monster design. Um, and that one was a long time coming. It's in a similar style to the kind of comic pop art style of cryptid encounter events that I've been making, like the Mothman Harbinger of doom design, uh, the Fresno nightcrawler design I have. Uh, I've also got the Hopkinsville goblins and Jersey devil and van meter visitor. Uh, so stoked to have, the Flatwoods monster added to that collection and people like immediately started picking, (laughs) picking them up. I was kind of surprised. So that was really awesome. Uh, if you're listening, thank you for being some of the, the early adopters of that design. I'm hoping to expand that line a little more before the end of the year. Um, but we'll see how that goes. Um, and of course I hosted a merch giveaway, as a thank you for the recent 30,000 downloads milestone that I passed, um, which featured the Flatwoods Monster design merch, I gave away a sticker, a mug, and a t shirt as well. Uh, so, congrats again to all the winners out there. Uh, and, you know, a reminder if you don't follow me uh, over on Instagram, especially, you'll want to do that. So you get to find out first when I'm hosting merch giveaways uh, for my merch (laughs) and uh, I'm on other, you know, big platforms too. um, But like TikTok, but I I haven't really done a giveaway there yet. Uh, And I also forget to post um, all the same stuff in every place that I post things Uh, so definitely follow me on Instagram Um, and as far as upcoming events go uh, I'm going to be vending at the uh, Sasquatch uh, Calling Festival in Whitehall New York on Saturday September 24th so if you're in the area stop by say hi uh, maybe pick up a t-shirt or a sticker that would be much appreciated and at the end of the day there's going to be a literal Sasquatch, uh, calling contest, (laughs) which I'm really excited to, to see. Uh, so definitely if you're in the area, come out, hang out. There's going to be a lot of vendors, uh, a lot of cool stuff going on all about Bigfoot. And speaking of cryptids, I've got some local cryptid news for, uh, the first time, which is kind of weird uh so this piece of news uh local to to my state is uh about catamounts uh otherwise known as cougars or or mountain lions. eastern cougar, I think is what it's officially referred to um and these big cats obviously they're not as big as like a tiger or a lion, but they're pretty big and they can mess you up uh they have been officially extinct. In the state of Vermont since 1881, Uh, but people over the last couple decades have occasionally reported seeing a big mountain lion, catamount like cat. Um, And there's some like sport teams. I think the like University of Vermont is the catamounts. (laughs) So it's kind of like you know an ingrained thing in the culture here, Um, and you know. It's when people see them, they're like, that's not an oversized house cat or a dog or even other like larger wild cats that we have here, like bobcats or lynx. Um, You know, they're pretty distinctive in their look. Uh, So I would think it would be hard to have it be a case of mistaken identity. So, you know, (laughs) they still exist elsewhere. Uh, in the country, of course. But as far as in, like, Vermont and the Northeast, they might as well be uh, cryptids because supposedly they don't exist here (laughs) these days. Um, So anyway, the story goes is that I'm grilling dinner uh, for my family and I, and I'm checking my email real quick to uh, see what's going on, and uh, the local town message board... uh, notification email that I get daily comes through and it's like a like a bulletin board that people can post things like oh I'm missing a dog or my cat or hey I do this this odd job if anyone has work for me or I'm selling stuff uh, or wanting recommendations for like I just moved to the area what's a good restaurant to eat at that kind of thing. Uh, it's like a local Craigslist. So the very first message says something like mountain lion spotted walking near the main road near local hair salon. And I'm like, what? (laughs) So I'm reading through this and this, this, uh, local person, um, describes it as this, uh, feline, uh, creature, this animal that's around two feet tall at the shoulder, uh, it has like a two foot or longer tail. It has this tawny brown coat and just all the hallmarks of a catamount. Um, and this is like less than two miles from where where I live. So now I'm on mountain lion alert. Um, so that's pretty interesting, you know. Um, I live in a place that, you know, has a it's a small town, but there's, you know, several thousand people that that live. Uh, in this town and there's commerce and, and busy roads and all that stuff. So um, there, there is some wilderness pretty close by uh, some state forests. So if one of these things um, wandered down from like Quebec uh, up in Canada or something like that, there could be a small population or it's just like a random individual. Uh, And, you know, there's, there's word on the street that they, they might be making a comeback to the Northeast. So uh, if you're, if you're, a hiker, if you're a hiker out, out there in new England or anything like that, definitely uh, watch out because there could be uh, a mountain lion uh, stalking you. <laughs> and I mean, I've seen big cat tracks out in the woods uh, in the past uh, few years Although I can't say I'm experienced enough with tracking to say whether or not it was a cougar versus a bobcat or a lynx or anything like that, but it's a pretty interesting uh, tale that I wanted to just (laughs) relay to you all there. I'm probably a little too excited about it, honestly. But anyway, um, that's enough of my rambling. Uh, Let's get into today's episode. Now, this one is about the conspiracy theory surrounding something called the Mud Flood and the Tartarian Empire, and this is a topic that I only learned about in the last year or so, and I've been wanting to cover it in some capacity ever since, uh, just because it's like really interesting, and it's it's this wild story full of twists and turns and. It, it makes you kind of question the official narrative of history to some extent. I was originally hoping to get this out last week, of course, um, but with how complex this theory is and with everything else going on, having limited uh, time in my schedule to research and take notes and, and all that, I needed I needed one more week to, to get this thing uh, into a cohesive thought. So, thanks for your patience. Um, now, sit back and relax grab a snack or you know do whatever you're doing if you like to listen to podcasts while you work and join me as i present to you the theory of the mud flood and tartaria all right so this one is like the mother of all rabbit holes and Apologies if you can hear a lawnmower in the background. My neighbor is just like grinding up grass right now. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I'm going to try to outline things here. And hopefully in the end, it all kind of makes some sort of sense within the structure of the theory. So what is or what was Tartaria and the mud flood? Well, starting around... 2016 or so these ideas really started kind of making the rounds on the internet and trending on google Uh, and tartaria at a glance was this supposed massive technologically advanced empire which some say was greater than the british or the roman empires throughout history Uh, it had its own flags extravagant architecture uh that a coarse and buggy civilization allegedly according to people who uh who suggest this theory shouldn't have been able to make and culture that spanned Eurasia and maybe even into North America as well and all of this of course predated our modern civilization and the word is that they held this global influence along with other major world powers at the time. And there's even this like graphic that shows, it's not even a graphic. It's an old illustration from this historical book that supposedly shows this lineage of emperors and Kings of Tartaria. And it seems like the existence of this empire was known as um, information about it used to appear in like the Encyclopedia Britannica up until the late 1700s or so, until it just kind of vanished without explanation. Uh, and the theory is that Tartaria was decimated by this uh, this great reset type of event that wiped it Wiped the whole thing out uh, by a series of natural disasters and cataclysms, uh, potentially war with other uh, powers around the world. in as little as 150 to 200 years ago. <laughs> so and afterwards, any traces left of this civilization were supposedly covered up and it was written out of the history books. Uh, anything that was left over buildings and and that kind of thing, technology was destroyed or refabbed technology was reverse engineered and then it would be claimed to be like a new invention. (laughs) So that's like the brief overview of what people who support this theory are claiming. And basically it, it falls into the realm of lost and forgotten or covered up history And I want to preface this episode by saying that based on what I know about history, I've always enjoyed reading about history. Um, I'm inclined to think that this is not really true. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of pretty outlandish claims and stuff like that that you'll you'll hear about. And uh, it's, you know, historians consider this to be pseudo history. Uh, And probably for good reason, uh, just because there's a there's so much historical evidence and documentation that contradicts all of these claims um, made by, uh, I guess we'll call call them Tartarian truthers. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, there's this popular saying with mythos uh, like this, uh, that history is written by the victors and perhaps there might be a kernel of truth to this story. So where is this all coming from? Well, it kind of seems like it started with people looking at old maps of the world. And old maps are really interesting. I love looking at old maps. Uh, Sometimes there's these old maps that show land masses that don't exist anymore. Not like related to Atlantis or anything, but in the Atlantic Ocean, kind of near Iceland, there was this island that was called Friesland that appeared for a while, uh, that wasn't actually there, or maybe it still is. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and it's just secret and covered up. Uh, it also makes me think of like high Brazil, uh, which I talked about on a previous episode once. Um, and there was also people used to think that California was actually an island. Uh, and there's some weird stuff about that, too, um, because, you know, the idea is that, like, oh, they just made cartographers just made a mistake. And uh, they thought that the the Gulf of California uh, beyond the Baja Peninsula just kept going and going up until uh, like the Alaskan coast or something like that. Uh, and they just made a mistake. But there's also on on these maps that show the island of California, there's these four uh, islands in the channel that correlate to some of the tallest uh, mountain peaks in California currently. And then there's also uh, San Francisco is on the map, but it's in in the bay that's in the channel. And then there's California Island, but it doesn't line up to where. San Francisco (laughs) is today. So that's really kind of weird and interesting. And you'd think that cartographers would be a little bit more accurate with their mapping. Um, But obviously, a lot of these old world maps um, look kind of odd and strange. Their technique wasn't as good as what we have today. Obviously, we also have satellites and that kind of thing that can very, very precisely map the surface of the planet that we live on (laughs) um so you know i think a lot of this this idea comes from these old maps and in asia on some of these old maps they depicted this large area in central asia uh that had these borders that would kind of ebb and flow they'd grow and shrink and and it was usually labeled as Uh, tartary tartaria or grand tartaria and this name dates back to about 13th century western europe and officially on the books it's this blanket term used in cartography to describe vast and unexplored wild regions uh, of, of the world and particularly in asia like the asian steppes and This area was encompassed by the Caspian Sea to the west, along with the Ural Mountains that divide Europe and Asia, uh, and to the east would be the Pacific Ocean. And before that, Tartary seems to stem from the ancient Greek word of Tartarus, which meant the underworld in the ancient Greek uh, polytheistic religion. So it could be interpreted as meaning something that's buried beneath us, perhaps something like a forgotten civilization. But according to the official narrative, uh, Tartaria was described as this place that was beyond the northern borders of China, India, and uh, Persia, modern day Iran. And, you know, it it was essentially Central Asia, this very large and uh, mostly uninhabited, unexplored wilderness. And according to history, after the fall of uh, Genghis Khan's Mongolian Empire, uh, which it didn't end with him, of course, it, uh, you know, broke into different kingdoms and 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 all that, uh, that fragmented. And, uh, you know, by the late 1300s, all these different kingdoms kind of assimilated into other major cultures of the time and those who didn't maintain a kind of nomadic lifestyle on the Asian steppes, uh, which is now primarily uh, modern day Russia and Mongolia, of course. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I don't know. It's just a really simplified overview of that. I could probably do a whole podcast series about that piece of history, but (laughs) I'm just trying to keep it brief because there's so much stuff to get into still. Um, Anyway, uh, these people uh, who lived in this vast expanse of Central and Northern Asia were once referred to as the Tatars or Tartars, uh, which is the name uh, that's mainly designated for Turkic speaking peoples, which may be why uh, the name Tartary and Tartaria shows up on old maps, uh, you know, in in addition to it being the name meaning like unexplored lands. So officially that's kind of like what (laughs) the story is. But beyond that, we have this little theory floating out there. It's not really a little theory. It's a pretty big theory (laughs) Uh, that instead uh, this Tartaria that shows up on all these old maps beyond being a wilderness with remnants of, the mongolian empire uh, that it was actually the birthplace of this erased and forgotten highly advanced civilization but where's the evidence you ask <laughs> well <laughs> i'm going to tell you there are a number of facets and subtheories to this overall grand unifying theory Of Tartaria. So I'm going to throw everything and the kitchen sink at you and go over all the parts of this theory that I could find in the time that I had available to me. Um, So I feel like my brain may have melted a little bit trying to make this all make sense. So I'm stoked to have a vacation to have a break. (laughs) So get ready. Uh, Here we go. All right. The first thing that I'm going to talk about here, which is one of the more popular uh, parts of the theory among the, the mud flood and Tartaria crowd um, is this so-called evidence and the existence of these defensive structures that are found all over the world called star forts. Um, And they were primarily built between the 16th and 19th centuries and there's some people who dedicate tons of time to studying just this one part of the, of the theory. And it, some of these places are relatively small. Uh, others were entire cities like built out of these geometrically precise structures that altered the very landscape that they were built upon. Um, thinking of my own corner of the world... Uh, nearby in new york there's fort ticonderoga which is effectively a star fort there's also one in crown point near the lake champlain crossing uh there's also one in the town of lake george and of course the history of those is that they were built in the 1700s and used during the french and indian wars as well as the revolutionary war seemed to be a kind of popular way of building a fortified structure uh, against aggressors. And the claim here is that because star fort structures are found everywhere around the world uh, and are all very similar in the way that they're built is that they must have been built by the same world-spanning civilization. Uh, this is sometimes called the star civilization and, um, which is kind of thought to also be Tartaria. Uh, so perhaps some of these forts are older than the official history behind them and were abandoned and repurposed by um, survivors after whatever the Great Reset was that happened that took down Tartaria. <laughs> and there's a bunch of different types of star forts with you know, different functionalities. And I'm gonna link pictures uh, of of these forts in the show notes, um, as always, just so you can see what they look like. A lot of them like liter- literally look like five pointed stars, and yeah, it, it, this episode needs a lot of visual aid. Um, I'll, I might make a, some YouTube videos about this eventually, but uh, for our whole deep dive. I'd probably be working on that episode for about six months and I don't want to keep you all waiting longer than you have to. Um, so here's, here's the rundown. There are, uh, four point star forts that are found in places like Europe. Uh, a good example is, um, a structure called holic. Uh, I think I'm I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, which is found in Slovakia. Uh, there's, Five-point star forts, like I mentioned before, they just look like a regular old star. Um, there's one called Castellet in Copenhagen in Denmark. Uh, there's also long and thin star forts that are they're called long thinnies, which is real clever, I think. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of those that are in France. There's also star cities or... Uh, Star hubs, as they're referred to, which can have anywhere from six to 12 like star points around them. Um, And an example of one of those is in um, uh, Palmanova in Italy. And there's a lot of geometry to these structures, which is really interesting. Um, So definitely check out the pictures I'm going to link. There's also um, star hedgehogs, which is a combination of a four to five point star fort. Um, And it also includes, uh, it's attached to a star city, which is like a city that's walled off with this kind of like pointy um, defensive structure. (laughs) And then there's also the star megalopolis, um, which an example of that would be uh, Floriana in Malta, which is essentially this large metropolitan area uh that incorporates the pointy style of the star forts and cities but just on a larger scale um so some think that like the star points on these places might connect with like the earth energy grid which harnessed power for tartarian cities and you know of zal alleged, of course, (laughs) but we'll talk about, uh, the free energy portion a little bit later. Um, it's also interesting that several of these star forts are built in geographically challenging locations, which causes, uh, Tartarian, uh, truthers out there to question how they were built in the first place, without modern technology and know-how. I mean, there's a lot of ancient stuff built on top of mountains with sheer cliff faces in places like India and Southeast Asia. Even Machu Picchu in Peru is, I would consider, an engineering marvel. And I always scratch my head uh, because it's like, how did they they build that and a lot of these civilizations that built them didn't have like wheels or pulleys Uh, sometimes they didn't even have beasts of burden to help out with moving stones and and just like (laughs) refacing geography and i'm not saying it was ancient aliens uh which you know a lot of people attribute that kind (laughs) of that kind of stuff to ancient aliens but this is not that i don't think And also, I've never been to the Statue of Liberty, but did you know that it rests on a structure called Fort Wood and it happens to be a freaking star fort? (laughs) It's probably just coincidence, but I don't know, guys. Um, And another detail about these things is that they usually have accompanying and auxiliary structures that go along with them, which were of course built in the same style uh, with lots of points and angles. And there's stuff like canal systems um, and these like man-made geometric islands with moats dug around them. Not too dissimilar to a medieval castle. Um, You can find a lot more info about this kind of stuff over on this website called starsiv.org. Um, and if you also Google, there's a, uh, a Starfort like map overlay uh, on Google Earth that you can download from this site where someone has gone through like, I don't know how many hours <laughs> of mapping out um, hundreds, maybe even thousands of Starforts around the world and also like potential um, Starforts and their accompanying structures. You know, sometimes you can see on on Google Maps, Google Earth, um, really old structures. It's basically like the only thing that's left is like the foundation and how it perturbs like the ground. So you can still see like the shape of it. It's it's pretty wild because literally these things are found in every corner of the planet. Some are really, really old, like especially in places like Central Asia, which where you'd expect to see a lot more star forts, although <laughs> there's not really all that many on this, this particular map that have been found, um, or like the Caspian Sea area that are just like overgrown. You can barely see the foundations of them. Uh, it, it would be really cool if like uh, a LIDAR scan was done on this kind of stuff, kind of how uh, research groups... Are, are revealing previously unknown Mayan cities in the Yucatan and Central America in recent years. Um, and on this map, it's mostly, I would say the majority of the star forts on this map are like in Europe. There's a lot in North America, some in Africa, some in India, Southeast Asia, and there's even a few in South America. Um, and yeah, it's, it's it's funny. It's just like the fun. the The bulk of them are all in Europe, which it makes me wonder, like if this is connected to Tartaria, this civilization that was supposed to like have its hub in Central Asia. Why are there not more in that area? Um, I think realistically, you know, it's probably stuff that was built in in the uh, the Renaissance to age of enlightenment <laughs> um, as part of like history that we do know. Um, and star forts I, I should have mentioned at the beginning, they're also called bastion forts um, which were like these forts were uh, on the books they're supposed to be these fortifications that were built like in tandem with the development and use of gunpowder and explosives in the battlefield uh, sometime in like the late 1400s and the polygonal design with its star points or outcroppings were supposed to eliminate like blind spots that an attacking army could use to their advantage. So looking at star forts under that context of the official historical record or narrative um does make sense um and you know either way you put it they're an engineering marvel for their day and uh, they're also really cool to look at but uh you know maybe maybe just maybe there's a connection to tartaria or some long forgotten or covered up global civilization but i think it's uh it's far more believable that this was a natural progression from a medieval style castle uh, or something like that uh, that evolved along with the the advent of new kinds of weaponry like guns and cannons and that kind of thing. All right. So the next piece I'm going to talk about is the architecture component of the theory and building styles that span continents and cultures seemingly hundreds of years apart. And this theory claims that they must have been connected to the same civilization. Many who subscribe to the theory of Tartaria and the Mud Flood point out that uh, the Bozar style, uh, it's French, it's spelled B-E-A-U-X-A-R, well, there's a dash, (laughs) a-R-T-S, and the Second Empire styles of architecture, which became popular during the late 19th and early 20th century. Beaux-Arts evolved from the French um, during their neoclassical period, uh, after the the French Revolution, and Second Empire kind of came out of the Napoleonic area, especially after Napoleon III, uh, who was the first president of France in like the mid 1800s. This is after like Napoleon, Napoleon who like decided to wage war on all of Europe. And then he got kicked off to, uh, was it Corsica? I can't remember what Island it was. (laughs) And then he came back and then he got kicked out again. Um, so these styles drew inspiration and elements from Renaissance and Baroque style architecture. So in a nutshell, It's stuff that's highly ornate and the United States was heavily influenced by this style from the mid 1800s up until the early 20th century. And basically the style could be described as having lots of arches, grand entrances and staircases. Uh, There's a lot of symmetry, flat roofs, uh, lots and lots of minutiae and elegant details among other characteristics Um, I won't (laughs) bore you with more details than that. But um, a lot of these grand entrances to these these buildings built with this style have these massive tall doors, which have led some Tartarian truthers to claim that the Tartarians might have actually been giants. Uh, And if you haven't listened to my two-part episode about ancient giants, definitely check it out because some of that could potentially play a role with this theory. Kind of interesting. Um, Now, some of the most well-known buildings in this style, um, I'll just list a few. There's the Palais Garnier in Paris, which is an opera house that was officially constructed between 1861 and uh, 1875 There's the old Singer Building, which was once the tallest building in Manhattan. Uh, It was built in 1908 and demolished in 1967. And as we dive into this theory further, we'll be finding out that demolition of old buildings plays a big role in this theory. (laughs) Um, Another was the uh, City Hall in San Francisco, which was built between 1913 and 1916 after the 1906 earthquake that leveled the city, which is interesting considering the cataclysm aspect of this whole theory. <laughs> and the New York public library in Manhattan is also considered to be built in this Beaux-Arts style uh, between 1897 and 1911. And there's also New York's grand central terminal uh, Washington, D.C.'s Thomas Jefferson Building is another one that's high on the list. And this kind of ar- architecture can be found it, all over the world. Uh, South America, Africa, East Asia, Australia, Europe, of course, beyond just France. Uh, its popularity really spanned the globe. Now, there's a number of historical buildings that have been demolished throughout the 20th century in the Beaux-Arts style. Uh that believers in this theory point to as evidence supporting it, like there was a cover up <laughs> and there's uh one of the buildings was the Waldorf Astoria that's pointed to for this cover up that was built in eighteen ninety three and it was once considered the fanciest luxury hotel in the entire world. It was sold. Only a couple decades later, in 1929, and immediately, uh, maybe not immediately, but shortly after, uh, was demolished to make room for the Empire State Building, which was built in uh, the 1930s. Uh, there's, There's also New York City's City Hall Post Office on Broadway, which was built in the Second Empire style, which was raised in 1939 to expand city hall park the original penn station was destroyed in the mid to late 1960s and was replaced with madison square garden and there's also several other examples of buildings like this that are being demolished everywhere uh, between america europe and asia and i think you could chalk this up to some of Them, uh, You know, they were built poorly, constructed poorly in the first place, or whoever buys the property wants to do something else with that property, even if they're, you know, (laughs) paving a parking lot. uh, That's their business, I suppose. Um, But it's interesting in the context of this theory that uh, this this Tartarian Empire was wiped out sometime in the 1800s. And they have all this grand architecture that's left over. Some of it's been repurposed. And part of the the generational erasing of it is to destroy uh, the last vestiges of this empire uh, through its art and architecture. Um, some people say that other... Uh, great constructions of humanity like the great wall of china was actually built by the the tartarians to keep the chinese out uh, versus our understanding that china built the wall to keep the mongolians out um you know that is if the tartarians were the mongolians as part of the theory who knows Um, another architectural component to this theory is that people point out they associate aqueducts a lot with this theory. Um, and of course, aqueducts are found all over Europe. Uh, they're mainly associated with uh, being constructed by uh, Rome. Um, the Minoan civilization may have invented them first about 2000 BCE. So like 4,000 years ago, because um, they had pretty advanced irrigation and, and watering systems for the time. Uh, but, you know, some of these are are grand in their design. They seem really old and some apparently have no record of them being built. So it's thought that they came from Tartaria. Uh, it's probably more like just bad record keeping. <laughs> but uh, one, of, one of the big ones that gets pointed out is that there's this Roman style aqueduct that's found in mexico city called the carataro aqueduct not sure if i pronounced that right apologies if i did <laughs> uh which was uh, officially built in the late 1700s but people often attribute this and other similar constructions to being uh let, let's say suspiciously tartarian <laughs> but you know i think there's some reasonable documentation for that aqueduct to say that it wasn't built by someone other than um, Mexico <laughs> at the time. Um, now, speaking of demolished buildings and intricate architecture, so one of the biggest aspects of this theory that people believe support the idea of this covered-up great civilization is the World's Fair. Uh, but why? Why? But why? Uh, I guess before going into that, um, if people don't know, I'm just going to give a brief explanation of what the World's Fair is. Uh, Essentially, these were these large international exhibitions that were designed to show off the achievements and, and progress of the world's many nations. Like how far has humanity come? And these events began in London in 1851. And since then, major cities all around the world have hosted these events like Paris, uh, Vienna, Philadelphia, Barcelona, Melbourne, Chicago, St. Louis, Brussels, San Francisco. And the list goes on and on <laughs> uh, between 1851 and up until about World War II. Uh, these events were held on a regular schedule like every two to three years uh sometimes there were longer periods that they didn't happen like eight to ten years um and since the 90s they've been on more of a five to six year interval uh and they still happen uh to this day I don't think they're um as as grand in scope as they used to be but they still actually happen <laughs> uh the next one's actually going to be in osaka japan in 2025 um but yeah they're just a little different today than they they were back in the 1800s um and all of the world's fairs have their own unique themes too uh, for example the next one is going to be designing uh, future society for our lives um and going back in time uh for example the st louis World's Fair in 1904 was kind of uh, celebrating or it was like a retrospective of the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, The 1893 Chicago World's Fair was about the discovery of America, um, which is also, uh, I think, the World Fair, uh, the Chicago one, is the one that this theory points to a lot as like the example. Um, The very first one was about the industry of all nations or, you know, like the Industrial Revolution, of course, in like the mid-1800s, right? Uh, so they kind of seem to mirror what's going on with humanity at the time, which makes sense, I think. Now, how this relates to Tartaria and the mud flood, uh, believers of the theory think that the initial World's Fairs in the 1800s were some of the last remnants of the Tartarian Empire. These events were grandiose and extravagant and scale uh, with millions of people attending them uh, with exhibitors and vendors showing off cutting-edge new technology uh, and culture and all this stuff. Um, there's also this part about how many of these world's fairs had entire areas constructed with contemporary buildings, uh, almost like a a mini city built over hundreds of acres in this short period of time, like a year. And then after uh, the world's fair happened, they would be demolished or sometimes they would get burned to the ground. I'm not clear on whether or not um, ones that got burned down were Uh, on purpose or on accident. Uh, (laughs) Some compared these massive undertakings uh, and their official explanation, like how Egyptologists say that the Great Pyramid was built in only 25 years, but it's made out of 2.5 million limestone blocks that are several tons each uh, without the use of the wheel. And if I did the math right, that works out to one block, being, uh, putting put into place, it, uh, very precisely, about every five minutes, <laughs> which is yeah, kind of wild. Uh, but obviously the buildings, um, of the World's Fair and the pyramids. So there's you know, uh, pyramids are far more complex than, than what was at the World's Fair, um, as far as how they were built and how long that took. Uh, but these places. Also have had these electrical grids, these early electrical grids that would light them up at night with working water, of course. Uh, the very first World's Fair in London wound up having more than six million visitors over the course of just uh, six months, which was a third of the population of the entirety of Britain at the time. Um, and there was this massive structure that was created uh, at this world's fair that was called the crystal palace exhibition which was dismantled after and then put back together in another spot in london and then um subsequently burned down in 1936 which a lot of like the tartarian truthers are like that's suspicious why did that burn down you know it could have been an accident i'm not sure but um because of all these fairs being dismantled or destroyed in one way or another, this theory suggests that it's, um, this erasure of Tartaria, like these world's fairs buildings were actually part of Tartarian cities. And then the new civilization, uh, came in and started using them. And then as a way to kind of, uh, erase knowledge of this previous civilization they got burned down or changed up a bit (laughs) but the problem with this idea is that a lot of these seemingly ornate buildings were built to look like old world architecture and we have on record that these places were built with like cheap material and mostly out of wood. So they could be taken apart, dismantled with relative ease and discarded afterwards because the world's fair is just kind of like renting an area to set up. It's like any old carnival coming to town and they're not going to just leave all of their, their rides and, and their trash (laughs) there after the event's over. Um, So you know, because the material's cheap, I think something like that could be easy, easily flammable, it could catch fire and just be disintegrated. Um, And as it turns out, there's only a handful of buildings over the hundred and what, 70 years of World's Fairs that were actually built to be permanent structures, uh, like Chicago's Field Museum, which was actually... uh one of the structures built for the Chicago World's Fair. Now, uh, let's talk about the mud flood. Uh, this is supposed to be this apocalyptic event that brought an end to the Tartarian Empire. This whole idea of a mud flood stems from the belief that old architecture from the 1800s and earlier shows signs of this worldwide mud flood type event that buried Tartarian cities under several feet of mud and earth, like an entire building story or more, 8 to 12 feet. However, what caused this supposed mud flood remains unclear, and nobody can seem to really agree if it was a global event all at the same time or a series of smaller events over the course of a few years. Some have suggested that mud volcanoes... Regular volcanoes, earthquakes um, that were so violent could have caused the ground to uh, undergo a process called liquefaction. Um, so instead of flooding the streets with mud that's coming from some unknown source, it actually like made the buildings sink into the ground. And we have modern day like video of this stuff happening. It, it, it is a natural like disaster type thing that happens sometimes, but on a global scale, mm, I'm not sure that that would happen. (laughs) Who knows? Uh, But in the wake of this event, Tartarian truthers point to certain old architectural features from buildings made in the 17 and 1800s as evidence of a mud flood. Perhaps you've walked around your town uh, or city And noticed ground level or basement windows in older buildings like churches, building blocks, apartment buildings, that kind of thing. And you might see these ground level windows, like literally just like a a window, the top of a window archway, just peeking out above the level of the sidewalk. And it clearly goes underground from there. And it's an interesting idea and makes you wonder, like, is this evidence that this building was buried and, like, I'm standing on top of, like, the mud flood? (laughs) Or was there, you know, is there a more reasonable explanation? Uh, If you Google mud flood evidence, you'll get a lot of image results showing old black and white photos from 100 or more years ago of certain buildings in various places around the planet uh, being dug up that show these buildings just keep going down and down further, 10, 20, 30 feet underground. Um, and it's not clear if it's like, this is the foundation or was the building actually buried? Because some of these, uh, parts of the, these buildings that are underground, they have full on windows and doors, um, that are clearly above like a foundation level, but they're also underground. Uh, one interesting example is St. Mary Magdalene church, where there's this old black and white photo of it being excavated and it was buried under 25 to 30 feet of dirt. And it's not the foundation that's 25, 30 feet. There's like, you know, a whole structure down there. It's kind of, kind of wild, but you know, what would, what would cause that? Would it be, An actual mud flood? I don't know. Uh, Or was there another reason for it? Um, Chattanooga, Tennessee is often cited as being a prime example of where you can find evidence of the mud flood, uh, like these tops of arched windows that are at sidewalk level. There's even claims that this city and others in America um, were already there when european settlers arrived like people were moving westward through north america and they found these cities totally constructed but completely abandoned so they just moved in set up shop built new roads on top of the sediment from the mud flood and rebooted civilization Uh, although the official explanation um for what's found in in chattanooga is that the the underground architecture that you can find there was a result of citizens efforts to prevent river flooding in the city after this big flood wrecked the place in 1867. So yeah, like Chattanooga's got this whole like underground that's, that's going on there that you can like go into. (laughs) And a lot of this was seemingly forgotten and then rediscovered in the 1970s. Another place is Leavenworth, Kansas, um, which has this large 200-year-old underground city portion. And apparently nobody knows who built it and why. There's also the um, Ybor City neighborhood in Tampa, Florida, that has this underground city component to it that's a complete mystery as well. Um, Yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, like... Just thinking about this, uh, this kind of stuff that's just like just under our feet. <laughs> um, and at a glance, first glance, you're like, well, maybe there's something to this theory after all. But I think that this idea doesn't take into consideration that for centuries, humans have just built uh, layer upon layer over previous and older buildings and over older civilizations. I mean, you can look at something like the, the catacombs in Paris or the old subway tunnels in New York city. They're just layered like an onion. I mean, there's places in, in Europe. Um, there's that example of, uh, like Darren Kuyu in Turkey where a guy was like remodeling his home and like Broke down a wall and found this tunnel into this old mega ancient uh, underground city that people lived in. And that's a whole other mystery, which (laughs) is really interesting. Um, You know, like street levels can and are sometimes raised up in certain circumstances, uh, potentially to uh, mitigate risk from uh, flooding from natural waterways. And, you know, everything is on the original ground level still and either gets turned into a basement or is just sealed off. So you have this original first floor that's buried and then below that there's the original basement and foundation in a lot of cases. And here's something to consider in regards to this part of the theory based on my own personal experience. Uh. The last time that I went to Seattle, uh, I actually went on a tour of the Seattle Underground. And this was well before I ever heard of Tartaria and the Mud Flood. But basically, the tour has uh, certain access points in the city where you can go underground and there's still like old storefronts that are buried 10 to 20 feet under street level, which is really wild. It's kind of, uh, it's a haunting experience. Um, and the reason why this stuff is still there wasn't because of a mud flood per se. Um, Seattle was actually, um, mostly burned to the ground in a fire in 1889. And I know fire, burning, destruction, Tartaria, right? Uh, but the city rebuilt on top of the the ruins of the original Seattle, which was also built on uh, tide flats from the Puget Sound, which were constantly flooding and turning the streets into this muddy mess. Um, there's this funny part about how... Um, the toilets that they used back then. And I can't remember if it was like, they were calling them crappers or what, but they had this like really like they had to put the tank, the water tank on it, like several feet above the actual like toilet because of the water pressure from the, like the tide coming in and out. And if it wasn't high enough, water would just like start spraying out of the toilet. So So it was a big problem for people who lived in, Seattle, and they had to essentially raise the entire city up a level like there's old pictures of them uh raising the streets up an entire building story level and paving paving everything over <laughs> so um, it's just a really interesting piece of history you know you've got these retaining walls that are eight to twelve feet underground and uh, to help out with the issue of of water flooding. And that's why there's this Seattle underground. It's a a weird little piece of history. And uh, if you're ever out in Seattle, definitely check it out. I'm not sure if if Chattanooga does uh, tours of their underground. I'm going to have to look into that. Um, But yeah, I know people that support this theory would probably just say it's all part of the cover-up. And of course, there's a fire that burned down old Tartarian architecture that was there before. But most of the buildings in Seattle at that time weren't really grandiose structures. I mean, mid 1800s, people were, were just getting out to that part of North America. And in fact, you know, most were just wooden houses, uh, maybe some larger municipal buildings, but it wasn't until after, the great fire of 1889 that buildings started to be required to be made out of brick and stone masonry. So there would be uh, less, less of a chance of the entire city getting leveled. Right. (laughs) So this leads to the next talking point, which is empty cities. And like I mentioned just a little while ago about reading about settlers stumbling upon an empty Chattanooga and other cities across the continent. Uh, this part of the theory points out, uh, that there's these old photographs from like the mid 1800s and onwards of all of these like grand cities where there's nobody present. Like they were built kind of like these, uh, empty cities that developers in China are building and nobody moves in uh, but we're talking like uh, places like London New York City Paris and so on major economic and cultural centers of the world so it's like these old 1800s cities were basically like ghost towns there's nobody on the streets no horse and buggy action no commerce going on or anything like that so the question is where are all the people if these were matop- massive metropolis type places. Surely there would be people out and about any time of the day in a city. I mean, you know, New York is the city that never sleeps. I'm not sure if New York was, is technically included on this list of like found abandoned cities. Um, But, you know, just for, (laughs) just for an example, Um, you know, I think this part of the theory is definitely one of the more far fetched aspects of it. I mean, the whole thing is, You know, it can be easily explained by, you know, saying that this picture was taken in the early hours of the morning. So nobody was out. People were still sleeping or these pictures could be taken uh, using like a long exposure, meaning you leave the shutter open. So if anyone walks into the frame, if only for a few seconds and the shutter is open for, say, several minutes, the person's not really going to show up. There might be like a slight blur, uh, but the longer exposure, I think it's less likely you'd find traces of, of, of people, you know, depending on the time of day, of course. And, you know, it also could be just like a perfectly timed shot where (laughs) every, everything that was moving in the frame finally gets out of, out of, uh, out of the frame. And there's nothing there. But even some of the pictures that are are claimed to be these empty cities, like sometimes you can see like a person off in the distance. <laughs> so I don't know. It's like. Then again, if it's a bustling city, there should be some traces of human activity. So, you know, maybe it's a combination of early in the morning or long exposure. I'm just spitballing here. (laughs) And of course, these old photos are in black and white, so it's hard to tell whether it's dawn or the middle of the day or just before night, or if it's cloudy, even on the flip side, of course, there, there are, of course, like I mentioned, plenty of photos from the 1800s that do show people in cities and videos, early films that show people driving, uh horse and buggy or early automobiles in city streets and stuff like that so this part of the theory i don't think holds much water at all all right a couple more points here uh that i want to make and and here's the fun one uh as to why people think that the the tartarian empire is being covered up and it has to do with free energy Now, if you ask anyone who has read anything about this theory is that the Tartarians had knowledge and mastery of the use of electricity. And not only that, this ability to harness electricity gave them power, of course, for their civilization and gave rise to the development of high-tech machinery and everything that comes along with that. Now, I've seen people... Posting about how Tartarians had robots or these motorized single-wheeled bikes called monowheels that South Park made fun of once. Um, uh, I mean, those were invented in the 1920s, which is well after the supposed collapse and cover-up of uh Tartaria, but it's kind of an out there invention that people throw in this whole idea. Um, All right, so where is Tartaria getting their energy from? Uh, Clearly, if there was a previous technologically advanced civilization that was using power, we would think that we could find traces or evidence of mining of, like, fossil fuels and that kind of thing. But the theory states that the Tartarian Empire – uh, was able to harness free energy from the ether or from Earth's atmosphere and the Earth itself. Uh, many point to old pictures of buildings that are built in the, the Bozar style and Second Empire style that have steeples and large spires with metal rods attached to them, even obelisks like the ones that are in... Washington, the Washington Monument, or uh in London, in the Vatican and Egypt, uh, even tall storage or lookout towers were theorized to be part of this old world electrical grid. Clearly these spire like structures are <laughs> either topped with lightning rods or weather vanes or uh other towers were used for uh lookout or storage purposes right so the idea is that these antenna as they're claiming were gathering free energy and functioning as kind of like power plants now this also kind of ties into the theory of the great pyramid of giza being a massive uh free energy power plant And an interesting thing to note is that there are actually old patents from the 1900s, the early 1900s, that some people have dug up that appear to show uh, plans for free energy devices um, or places like churches with their large steeples that could potentially be used to capture this uh, kind of universal force Uh, to provide power to the world. And of course, you know, this is the same time period that Nikola Tesla lived in. And one of the big things with him was trying to figure out how to wirelessly transfer free energy around the world. And he was on his way to working on this, this idea and trying to find a solution to it with Wardenclyffe Tower Um, which is basically a a Tesla coil on steroids that would draw energy from the atmosphere as well as from the earth itself. Um, But of course, ultimately he lost funding and the tower was dismantled. So Nikola Tesla is a whole topic that I think probably deserves (laughs) its own episode. Um, So yeah, maybe I'll I'll do that at some point in the future. (laughs) Let let me know if you want to hear more about Tesla for sure. Uh, One thing I stumbled upon when researching this whole thing was the idea of natural nuclear reactors as a a potential power source for Tartaria. So in Africa, in the country of Gabon, there is this site called the Oklo Uranium Mine. And in the early 70s, French scientists were testing uranium samples taken from there. And found that there was a much lower amount of usable uranium than they initially thought. It looked like there was enough uranium 235 missing from these samples to make six nuclear bombs, which is kind of (laughs) crazy. So, um, but it wasn't material that was stolen from the mine or anything. They realized that this, like 200 kilos worth of uranium had been missing already for 2 billion years. And what they had stumbled upon was an ancient nuclear reactor that was like all natural. Like how does that work? (laughs) And as it turns out, uh, this kind of thing was only theoretical up until the point that this was discovered. And the only way it can happen is if some very, very specific environmental conditions were met and lo and behold, the Oklo mine actually had the very conditions needed for uh, this to work, which involved enough uranium, enough neutrons hanging out from decayed uranium, which would start a chain reaction of energy, and then natural groundwater, which there was plenty of in that mine, which would flow in and control the reaction and keep it going eventually that water would evaporate and then the reaction would slow down maybe i'm getting that backwards (laughs) Uh, either way it was like this natural process where like the groundwater would come back and help uh help maintain and balance out the reaction that was happening and it was said that this reaction would put out about 100 kilowatts of energy per hour. And this reaction was going on for hundreds of thousands of years until it eventually used up too much of the uranium deposit to maintain the reaction. And I think officially this is the only known nuclear, natural nuclear reactor, but allegedly there are about 16 or so in Gabon, and allegedly several others around the world and of course why this is important to the tartaria theory is that these could have been like a potential source of power somehow if these reactions were still going and there was a way to somehow harness uh the energy the steam to like maybe get something to uh like a a magnet to spin, to cause, <laughs> to generate electricity an electromagnet. Jeez. <laughs> um, but you know, this would all have to happen without, uh, Tartarian scientists having their faces melted off by the radiation, right? They'd have to have like, you know, special suits and stuff and structures that would have to be built, which I don't think there's any evidence of. Um, but it is, uh, it's it's interesting to to think about in, in the context of the theory, but you know I suppose the the big problem with this theory is that this mine, the nuclear reaction that was happening there, stopped two billion years ago. So you know can't really use that in the eighteen hundreds, right? Um, it, it is an interesting thought, but I don't think it adds up unless there there's more of these things out there currently happening and and being harnessed, but yeah i don't think <laughs> I don't think there are anymore at least um but that is kind of a cool piece of history to to know that you know it is possible that there could be a natural nuclear reactor happening in the world um but as far as one of the reasons for tartaria being covered up was of course the free energy right. The competing western civilization that we're a part of um which uh the Tartar- tartarian truthers um you know blame the cover-up on is like the uh the elite class of people the powers that be uh, the bankers the multinational corporations and and such discovered massive fossil fuel deposits in the 1800s like oil and gas and coal and all that and began exploiting it and creating the world's first oil tycoons, the petrodollar, all that, (laughs) that other rabbit hole. That's yeah, we're, we're not going to go there today, but um, they wanted to corner the energy market, right. And make it so that the only way people could get electric power was through them and them alone. And if people wanted power, they of course had to pay up. And I think that's, as as far as what i've talked about you know so far that you know there could be some credence to this part of the theory as to why a civilization with free energy was covered up that got taken out somehow (laughs) um like you know for example there in the early 20th century there were actually electric cars um that people used to drive. I think it was probably too expensive to build them and maintain them at the time. I mean, hell electric cars today, EVs are still ridiculously expensive. Um, But you know, once the combustion engine took over uh, electric cars, weren't largely considered again for mass production and mass use until, you know, the recent past two decades or so, uh, over concerns of like stuff like peak oil and climate change and that kind of stuff. So, you know, that's, (laughs) that's the free energy, uh, portion of the theory. It's, uh, you know, pretty interesting for sure. Uh, now another puzzle piece, and this is, uh, we're going to do two more two more things here <laughs> cuz we're 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 uh, past the hour right now uh the the next puzzle piece that uh people claim are like the receipts of like this being a real thing is this document from the CIA from 1957 that was declassified in 1998 and you know this is I think this is an example of like cherry picking something without the context of the rest of the document. And keep in mind, this is the 1950s. So the the Soviet union was at its height and the world was well into cold war and under threat of nuclear annihilation at like any minute. Um, So I'm just going to read verbatim what the document states. Um, All right. Or let us take the matter of history, which, along with religion, language, and literature, constitute the core of a people's cultural heritage. Here again, the communists have interfered in a shameless manner. For example, on the 9th of August, 1944, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, sitting in Moscow, issued a directive ordering the party's Tartar Provincial Committee to, quote, proceed to a scientific revision of the history of Tartaria to liquidate serious shortcomings and mistakes of a nationalistic character committed by individual writers and historians in dealing with Tartar history. In other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten, let us be frank, was to be falsified in order to eliminate references to great Russian aggressions and to hide the facts of the real course of Tartar-Russian relations. And this was no isolated case. In every Muslim area within the USSR, historians and on orders of the Communist Party have rewritten history to distort facts so that the Russians appear always in a good light. Needless to say, histories which present the facts truthfully have been withdrawn and destroyed so that the present and future generations of Muslims are forever denied a chance of learning the true facts of their nation's past. So a lot of people consider this as like a smoking gun proving this theory. But again, it's kind of sort of cherry picking uh, this quote without the context for the rest of the declassified document. The the document is actually talking about the Soviet Union's dealings and subjugation of Muslim people throughout the Asian portion of the Soviet Union, like uh, out to Kazakhstan and Siberia. Uh, It's less to do with covering up and erasing some grand prior unified global super civilization like Tartaria supposedly was and more to do with Soviet imperialism enforcing communism on uh, all of these people who live in Central and Northern Asia. And I can see how like this quote is like, oh, there is this big cover up and Russia is behind it. Like they're the ones who erased Tartaria somehow. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) I just think uh, that quote is really kind of just it's it's cherry picking without kind of putting into context the rest of what the document was saying. Now, uh, the last little piece here uh, that I'm going to mention is a it's a little bit of a, a a dark a dark element of it a little bit of a bummer but um well we're just going to end on a bummer note <laughs> uh, so throughout the uh the 1800s and early 1900s uh as many of us know there were uh a lot of uh, asylums built across america for uh the the mentally ill and part of theory that includes this aspect uh, claims that these asylums were used to section off people who survived the mud flood and the cataclysm that brought an end to the Tartarian Empire. Uh, People who remembered the old world, they say, would be thrown into these institutions and branded as insane or in need of some kind of psychological uh re-education to be a part of the new world society sounds kind of uh orwellian right (laughs) and then there's also talk of um orphan trains which uh back in the 1800s there was this whole thing going on where a quarter million children who were all orphaned were shipped out from the East coast of America and westward to various cities uh, between 1850 and like 1930 or so. And this was actually like the start of the foster care system in the United States. And this is, this is a real thing. Like, look it up. I didn't know about this until I was looking into Tartaria. Um, And this uh, the explanation is that many of these children were from new immigrants that came to the U.S. uh, or were from poor and destitute or um, families that abused them. And unfortunately, there were no safeguards in place back then for the safety and, and well-being of these kids. And many of them wound up being used for slave labor on farms or the caretakers that they were brought to neglected or just abused them too. And by the time 1929 rolled around, there was a decreased need for uh, farm labor um, due to the invention of certain technologies that helped make things easier for farmers, especially in the Midwest. So this train program, the orphan trains ended Um I kind of wonder if the the Dust Bowl might also factor into that somehow. Uh, not an avenue I, I looked into, but just a random thought. Uh, but, you know, how this fits into the Tartarian theory is that the idea that these 200 to 250,000 kids might have been orphaned when their parents died in the mud flood. And afterwards, uh, when people started picking up the pieces to rebuild civilization, these kids were shipped out to repopulate the devastated cities throughout North America. And according to the theory, it would be a perfect way to erase the memory of Tartaria with these, these orphaned survivors, because these children wouldn't have much, if any prior knowledge um, of Tartaria. And of course, any like non-Tartarian adult wouldn't be bringing them up with knowledge about it if they were, you know, ordered to keep it under wraps. I mean, overall that seems pretty out there. I think like I can see how, uh, from a conspiracy theory perspective, it can be made to make sense, but who knows? I'm not sure. 250,000 children shipped across country on a train over the course of 80 years would be able to repopulate the continent. And also that's like three to four generations right there you'd think that if they were all tartarian that a the amount of children should have all been shipped out within the first year or two right (laughs) otherwise there would be generations still growing up with potential knowledge of their past but maybe that's just all part of the conspiracy There's so many facets to this one. And uh, every time I checked out message boards, Reddit threads or blogs to dig up more info on this thing, it's like there's not really a lot of cohesive stuff uh, in one spot. I think there might be like a book or two, but I couldn't really get my hands on that. (laughs) So I had to work with what what I had. Um, But yeah, you know, it's like you, you keep looking into this this theory and you keep falling down different rabbit holes. And uh, that's the thing with this theory. I just kind of, I feel like I just covered the surface level of each section. And there's a lot of way more in-depth things about it that um, people who look into this theory have written about or looked into. Um, And yeah, like some people put a lot of time and effort into this theory, but whether or not, I believe in it, you know, after, after looking into it, I still think it's, it's more likely that this is, this is just fantasy. Uh, as there are, there's tons of historical records and accounts that I would think prove the opposite of what this theory is, is claiming. Like, it's a fantastical idea. That's fun to think about some lost high technology civilization, You know, who doesn't love the idea of like a free energy society, this apex utopia that that was out there at some point in history. But I feel like if it was only wiped out less than 200 years ago, there'd be more concrete evidence of it. Who knows? I'm more inclined to believe that if there there is a lost civilization from our history that was out there some some time, we'd be looking at something more connected to places like Gobekli Tepe and that are possibly connected to something far older, like a progenitor type civilization like Atlantis. But um, yeah, anyway, I hope you enjoyed the ride with this one. <laughs> I think uh, we'll be taking a little break from from conspiracy theories for, for a bit to, to let my brain get some rest. <laughs> And now a, uh, a quick word from our sponsor, me. <laughs> but really, um, if you want to sponsor the Strangeology podcast, uh, please reach out to me for business inquiries at strangeologist at gmail.com. That's S-T-R-A-N-G-E-O-L-O-G-I-S-T at gmail.com. Or you can hit up the contact form on my website, strangeology.com. I would love to work with you. And if you're looking for a way to support the show and my content creation, the best place to do so right now is to head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology. I've got six different tiers, all with increasingly awesome benefits for members. Members can get shoutouts, merch discounts, exclusive merch, early access to episodes access to Strangeology Beyond, which is the members-only portion of the show. There's even a t-shirt of the Month Club, where you get a new home state Crypto design on a t-shirt every month. And it's been a minute since I've done a big shout-out, but there's a number of new people who have signed up to the Patreon, so let's just shout-out everybody. We've got Alex, Alyssa, Chad from Appalachian Huntsman, Metazoo Games, Greg Morrill from All the Weird and Cryptocasters, Sean, Miranda, John, Maureen, Prepared Wolf, Gail, Adam, Ryan, Cassie, Anne, Roxy, Angie, MG, Adam, Daniel from Blue Room Insight, Easton, Guy, Nolan, Megan, Jason, jeff from map and black and our newest edition, craig so thank you all for your continued support it helps me out so much and helps keep the lights running here at strangeology and just one more time if you want to check it out and lend some support you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology You can also support the show by heading over to strangeology.etsy.com. This is my one-stop shop for all things weird and Fortean. I've got a bunch of cryptid designs, UFO designs, and that kind of stuff that you can pick up on t-shirts and tank tops. Or, since colder weather is coming, at least in my part of the world, there's also long sleeves, sweatshirts, and hoodies available. I even have some pattern designs on fleece blankets, which is fun if you want to cozy up for the upcoming spooky season. I have also got stickers, posters, pins, my home state cryptid map. And of course, I'm always working on adding more and more items to the shop as time goes on. I even have a Tartaria design in the shop if you've (laughs) not noticed. Uh, So if you like cryptid gear and that kind of stuff, Definitely check it out. Again, that's strangeology.etsy.com. And, of course, listening to the show and sharing it with your family and friends is one of the biggest ways to support the show. It always helps out and means the world to me. Without you all out there tuning in and sharing the show, downloading it, I don't know what I'd be doing. And also, as always, make sure to follow me on all my socials, linked in the show notes for more content, giveaways and all that stuff. All right. I think that's all for me for now. I'm going to take a quick break here. And when I come back for Strangeology Beyond, I'm going to chat about another historical conspiracy theory that's called the Phantom Time Hypothesis. Patrons, stick with me. And for everyone else, until the next time, take care of yourselves and each other. And keep it strange. everyone welcome back to strangeology beyond your members only portion of the show this one's probably going to be a little bit shorter than usual just because of